if you will, liturgical or more formal element of services. Whereas on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have kind of the more spirit-led churches or Pentecostal, where everything is kind of unscripted and uh, you just never know what will happen next exactly. There's, there's wisdom and things that you can glean from both sides. Uh, so it's good to pray, kind of just whatever comes to mind on the, on the moment. But there's also some wisdom, and I think that's where we stand today. There's wisdom for us to lean into some of the more formal, kind of written prayers, if you will. So what I have here today is called the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions you all do not have this in your library, I highly encourage you to get a copy. It's a wonderful book, uh, one, pay, one prayer per page. They vary on topics, and, um, but as you'll see in just a moment, they are very rich, very thorough, and I was just reading on the back just now. Um, while there isn't anything wrong with extemporaneous praying, we are all should do that, encouraged to do that. Um, This back little excerpt here says, Too often, extemporaneous prayer can lack variety, order, and definiteness. The reason for this lies partly in the neglect of due preparation. It's here that the care and scriptural thoroughness, which others found necessary in their approach to God, may be of help. So this is, again, just something to consider, to supplement, to aid, to stir, to strengthen your prayer life. So today, today's prayer before we dive into God's Word is just simply entitled Love, and I encourage you to, to pray with me. Lord Jesus, give me to love Thee, to embrace Thee, though I once took lust and sin in my arms. Thou didst love me before I loved Thee, an enemy, a sinner, a loathsome worm, Thou didst own me when I disclaimed myself. Thou dost love me as a son and weep over me as over Jerusalem. Love brought thee from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave. Love caused thee to be weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified, and pierced. Love led thee to bow thy head in death. My salvation is the point where perfect created love and the most perfect uncreated love meet together. For thou dost welcome me, not like Joseph and his brothers, loving and sorrowing, but loving and rejoicing. Thy love is not intermittent, cold, changeable. It does not cease or abate for all my enmity. Holiness is a spark from thy love, kindled to a flame in my heart by thy Spirit. And so it ever turns to the place from which it comes. Let me see thy love everywhere, not only in the cross, but in the fellowship of believers and in the world around me. When I feel the warmth of the sun, may I praise thee, who art the sun of righteousness with healing power. When I feel the tender rain, may I think of the gospel showers that water my soul. When I walk by the riverside, may I praise Thee for that stream that makes the eternal city glad and washes white my robes that I may have the right to the tree of life. Thy infinite love is a mystery of mysteries and my eternal rest lies in the eternal enjoyment of it. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alrighty. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we are finishing up another chapter in the Gospel of Luke, five to go. Luke 19, beginning in verse 41, we'll read through verse 48. And if you're able one more time, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. This is God's word. You may be seated. So part of the way in life that you can tell what people love is to see how they respond in certain scenarios and situations. All right, let me make that more concrete for you. This is a classic example. Some of you know it personally, firsthand, have witnessed it. Some of you, it's just kind of that joking thing we kind of talk about. The classic example, right? The dad has a pristine 2023 Chevy Corvette and... You know, it's nice in the car or in the garage. One of the kids comes by with the key. And what does he do with the key, with that shiny car? He just scratches the side of it and right on that beautiful glossy hood, just writes some, you know, doodles and pictures and whatnot. All right? We know this typical scenario. What happens typically in this occasion? The father will fume Oh, well, that's true. The father will faint. Yeah, that's probably true. I I think the father would fume, right? He would get just burst out with anger. What on earth are you doing? I'm not going to try to reenact that. But he'd get angry at that, in part because he loves having a pristine, nice, fancy new car. You can tell what he loves by what he gets angry at. Now, when it comes to our King Jesus, the God that we serve, 1 John 4, verse 16, is a very familiar verse. It tells us that God is love. So Jesus is love at his core. But in our text we see this morning, we don't see the word love present. But it's overwhelmingly evident that that's what's going on here. Because when you look at the text, you might be wondering on the surface, you know, why does Jesus get sad? Why does he get angry? Why does he weep? Why does he have a frown on his face? It's clear 
that Jesus responds in this way, in this emotive way, because of his deep love that's present in his heart. And the surface level question, it's quite simple. Why does Jesus weep? Well, it's pretty simple when you read the text. Jesus weeps because Jerusalem was blind to the peace that he had come to offer. That's why he weeps. Why does Jesus get angry? Well, it's kind of obvious in verse 45 and 46. Jesus was angry because of the greedy money changers who were in the temple, making a profit who were just filling that area with greed and making it a den of robbers. That's why he got angry. In other words, this was the key that was scratching on the side of the car. That was the visible, clear sign of what prompted him to respond in this way. But below the surface is a more fundamental question, and that is this. What is it that Jesus loves? What does he care about so much that he responds in this way? What do his tears and his anger reveal about what he truly loves in his heart? What's the most popular verse in the Bible? John 3.16, arguably. That's the answer, in part. For God so loved the world. Not necessarily the planet per se, although he does love the planet. He loves the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. For God so loved humanity, for God so loved people, human beings, that he sent Christ into the world. And I summarized it like this, when, especially keeping in light um, the, the previous passage, the king who has come to bring us peace. I, I put it down like this. Jesus loves you, and he wants you to have peaceful fellowship with him. Jesus loves you, and he wants you to have peaceful fellowship with him. And anything that inhibits us from doing that, anything that inhibits us from going to his presence, whether it be our own blindness or whether it be stumbling blocks from outside forces, anything that inhibits us from fellowshipping with him causes him grief, sorrow, and it causes him anger in some cases. And that's what we see clearly displayed today. So as we walk through the text, two big points, two big parts for you. We're going to look at, one, a love that cries, and two, a love that frowns. Pick each of these apart more so. So firstly, a love that cries. This is from verses 41 to verse 44. As he approached Jerusalem, Jesus is right there. It's visible right in front of him. And he sees the city. The text says, he wept over it. There are three occasions in Scripture where it's recorded that Jesus cries or weeps or sheds tears. Does anybody know one of them? Some of you should know this other one. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Where's that reference at, somebody? You know that one? John 11.35. So, Bible trivia for you. I like throwing that out every now and again. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. John 11.35. Many of you probably have heard that before. The other passage is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 10. If you want to read that later, you can. Hebrews 5, 7 to 10. But John eleven thirty five, the all-famous verse, Jesus wept. The very next verse includes a very important truth about why he wept. John eleven thirty six, we read this. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how Jesus loved Lazarus. The reason Jesus cries, he weeps, he sheds tears is because of his great love for us. And that's the case here in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. 
Now why? Well, the text says, they did not know what would bring them peace, according to verse 42. They did not know what would bring them peace. And then according to verse 44, at the very end, they did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. Now, in light of what we just read before, or went over last Sunday, at least to me, I scratch my head a little bit. Because I wonder, the people on the roads, on the streets, the crowds, by and large, what were they doing? They were rejoicing, they were celebrating, they were exclaiming songs of praise, they were singing, verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. It sounds like to me, the crowd knew the King has come, praise be to Him, but also He's come to usher in peace. So why then is there dis- this disconnect in verses 41 and 42? Why does Jesus have this sorrow? Where's the disconnect amongst the crowd and between Jesus? Well, let's unpack the text a bit more. So to be clear, the Jewish people in the first century, they did want peace in their life. They did want peace in their land, absolutely. But by and large, you may have heard this explained before this way, but by and large, the Jewish people wanted horizontal peace. They wanted relief from their tyrannical, godless government leaders over them, the oppressors over them. They did want salvation. They did want deliverance, but on a national and political level. And how can you not see echoes of that today? I mean, how many people in this country, how many people here today in Hillsborough Baptist Church, looking at all of you, how many of us put so much hope and stock and energy and love into politics hoping that as long as the right person is the president, we have the right Senate, the House, whatever it might be, as long as the government leaders are right, my life is going to be okay. That's what most matters in life. Not many of us would actually say that verbally, but your heart is where your time is. Your heart is where your time is, where you think about what you dwell upon. That was certainly the case back in the day. They wanted out there, The top dog leaders, they wanted society around them to be fixed, to experience peace in that way. But how many of them actually wanted peace with God? How many of them actually personally wanted a relationship with this Jesus? How many of them wanted to be reconciled to him, to have fellowship with the Lord? That was not the heart cry of the majority back then, and it certainly isn't the heart cry of the majority today. And this is what breaks the heart of Jesus. It's akin to, you know, this this scenario might touch some of you home a lot more than, than others. But if somebody in your life you know, somebody in your family, if they are a serial alcoholic, if they are shipwrecking their marriage, they have a horrible temper, financially greedy, pridefully self-absorbed. It would be music to your ears, wouldn't it, if they were to come to you and say, I need help. Wouldn't you love to hear that word, those words? It's just the beginning statement of where they can receive that peace, that restoration, that wholeness. I need help. But what if the very next beat, they finished that sentence and said, I need help digging the rock out from the garden. Right? It's 
no, yeah, you do need help, but that's not what you really need help with in life. That's not the biggest problem right in front of you, and it's so true when it comes to our interaction with God. Lord, I need peace. I need peace with my boss. I need peace physically. My body is just aching and weary. There's nothing wrong with praying for those things, right? You have to understand me. But it's a matter of priority. Do we understand that our greatest need is not for out there to be fixed, not even for our physical bodies to be fixed yet, but for our inner souls to be renewed, to be restored, to be cleansed, to be reconciled to God? That is our greatest problem. Not out there, but the sin within each and every one of us. But that is why Jesus came initially to inaugurate that peace, to give us that peace with God. Eventually when he comes back, the whole world will be restored, society will be restored, creation will be restored, everything will be experiencing full shalom, full peace. But here and now, we experience that peace firstly in our hearts. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace. But it continues. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why he came into the world. That is why Jesus is weeping here. Because they were, if you will, a little close. They, they kind of got it. They knew Jesus, there's something about him. But they completely missed the point. They didn't understand that Christ had come to bring them personally peace. Jerusalem missed it. And he says right there, verse 42, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And you see, church, when you, in general, but you personally, right, when you reject the king of peace, the only thing that is left is the chaos of the world. And that is what Jesus talks about in verses 43 and 44. Jesus famously, once again, predicts the fall of Jerusalem, the central hub of the Jewish life. But we know from history that the city did fall in A.D. 70. It was destroyed. It was wiped out. The temple was destroyed. And Jesus predicts that there in verses 43 and 44. And it's similar for you and I today. When we reject the king of peace, the chaos of the world is the only thing left for us. And I hope you understand what's going on here. Do not miss the heart of Christ. What prompts his tears is his love for the people. We, we prayed about it in the, the Valley of Vision prayer book. It talked about Jesus' heart being revealed by, as he wept for Jerusalem. And it's a simple question. Do you today see your need for him? Do you see your need for personal peace with God? But then... The text continues, verses 45 and following. We look at a love that frowns. So when Jesus gets into the city, his first order of business is to go to the heart of the city, which is the temple. And as he goes to the temple, what's actually kind of interesting to note, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus arriving at the temple is in and of itself a fulfillment of prophecy. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, listen to this. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. That right there is an astounding 
promise in and of itself. God himself would come to the temple. That is truly what happens when Jesus enters the temple courts yet again. So he reaches the inner temple temple courts, as verses 45 talk about, which when you, when you do some studying and doing some commentary, fact-checking, this was actually the court area for Gentiles that, that Jesus was particularly at. So just keep that in the back of your mind. So when Jesus is there, Mark eleven fifteen gives us a few more details about what happened here. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. There are several different pictures that portray this event in Jesus' life. And I remember personally in college at, at one point, I was talking with a friend of mine. We were just shooting the breeze about Christianity and the Bible and different things and different topics. And he, he genuinely was saying, this wasn't kind of a, a snarky comment, but he was genuinely said to me, I, I really struggle to understand that episode in Jesus' life when Jesus flips the tables because it just completely goes against when I think of Jesus being humble and lowly and gentle and, and being love. How, how do I make sense of that? How does that fit into the overall picture of who Jesus is in the New Testament? That's a great question. It's a very real apologetic question. Apologetic meaning if somebody were to have an accusation against Christ or the Bible. You know, I, I, I like Jesus, but the whole thing about him flipping tables and stuff, I, I don't really buy that. I don't believe in that. I don't think that's accurate. That really happened. Apologetic is how to defend that, how to respond to something like that. And here's my attempt at doing that. Let me ask you, what is Jesus getting mad at here? What is causing him to have this vibrant display of anger? In John 2, if you didn't know, in John chapter 2, Jesus had actually cleared the temple on two different occasions. One at the beginning of his ministry, one right here, the week before his death. So in John chapter 2, there's an interesting little detail there that when Jesus went to the temple, I'm trying to, verse 15, there it is. So I, let me just read this really quick for you. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So in John 2, that first occasion, it's that more vivid description of Jesus using a homemade whip to clear people out. Imagine, I was just going to say, imagine, I mean, if I were to come in here with a whip Sunday morning, right? y'all get out of here, it's time to go, right? It's just, what on earth? But right there in John chapter 2, part of the answer is given. What, why is, what is Jesus getting mad at? What's going on? What's prompting this? John 2, 17 Zeal for your house will consume me. It's Jesus' zeal, his passion, his fervor, his commitment, his love for the temple, for the house of God, which is driving this. Now, let's back up a little bit for you and I today in the 21st century. What is the temple 
What is the house that Jesus is talking about? Well, in uh, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 49, Jesus is in the temple when he was a teenager, or I think he was 12 years old, actually. And that's when his parents were looking for him. They, were, they had lost him. Jesus is in the temple. And after they are going back and forth, the parents are, you know, Mary and Joseph are asking, where did you go? Why did you leave us? And then Jesus famously responds back, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Did you not know I had to be about my father's business? So when Jesus talks about my house or my father's house, he's either referring to the temple itself or in John chapter 14, that's when Jesus also famously says, do you not know that I, in my father's house there are many mansions, there are many rooms in my father's house? So he's either referring to the temple or he's referring to heaven. Either scenario. What the, the central point is this. The temple in my father's house is the place where God's presence is. It's the place where God's presence resides, where it dwells, where, it, where he abides. It's, it, I can't overstress it. I can't fully explain it. But the temple was the central location for the Jewish people in the first century. Not just the first century, throughout a large part of their history. And one, temp, one uh, commentator, he said that for the tabernacle and the temple, the tabernacle was the temporary solution, the temple was the permanent one that was fixed. He said, the tabernacle and the temple, it was the symbol of God's presence with his people and therefore of his availability. But it was also a place where his will was communicated. Let me, let me simplify it by saying this. The temple of God is the place where the presence of God was. And the presence of God, according to Psalm 16, verse 11, is where the fullness of joy is. The temple of God is where the presence of God is. Where the presence of God is, there is fullness of joy. So what Jesus is passionate about isn't a building per se. Because we see the temple was destroyed, A.D. 70. We see in the New Testament that now the church is the temple. What Jesus cares about is people coming into his presence. People basking in his presence. People communing, fellowshipping with him in peace. That is what Jesus loves. That is what he is passionate about. In Isaiah chapter 56, you can turn there if you'd like, but if not, that's all right. When Jesus quotes, you notice in your Bible, in Luke 19, verse 46, Jesus says, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah 56. And if you read that chapter, that little passage there, the surrounding verses, there's more context, more kind of insight as to what Jesus is talking about. In that chapter, the Lord says that for those, and this is from the the text, for those who hold fast to my covenant, to those who love the name of the Lord, I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here's the summary. God will give them fullness of joy. He will accept them. They will be welcomed into his presence, and this will be available for all people, all nations, all backgrounds, no matter what kind of sin you may have come from. This is available to all people. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. 
But now, let's kind of fast forward back again to Luke 19, to Jesus flipping tables. One more little note to keep in mind. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, this is important for you and I to remember. Before his death and resurrection, the people fellowshiped with God through the temple. You and I have the privilege of being able to go to God no matter where we live. Whether we're in Crozet, China, Chile, or Cairo. It doesn't matter. We can go to God wherever because of what Christ has done. Because we collectively are now the temple of God, as 1 Corinthians 3.16 talks about. But back then, you could only atone for your, sacrifice, for your sin in the temple, in Jerusalem. But there's another important note to remember. Not everybody lived in Jerusalem. Some people traveled there many miles, Jesus included. Because in Luke chapter 2, with Jesus with his parents, Mary and Joseph, they lived in Nazareth, so they traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to offer their sacrifices. Now, if you're going to travel many miles to the city, you, can't, you don't bring just animals, toting them along. So when the travelers would arrive to Jerusalem, to the temple, it was a good thing for the merchants to have animals available to sell. As one commentator said, the merchants and the money changers, they did a good work and they performed a useful, even necessary function. So that's not the issue that there are people selling animals per se. The problem was that the merchants set up shop in the court for Gentiles. In other words, they were taking advantage of those who were on the outside, outsiders. Taking advantage of them, they were being exorbitant, overcharging them for these animals. So instead of the temple being a place of sweet fellowship with God, of of access to the Lord, unhindered access to the Lord, it become a den of robbers, as Jesus says. It had become a hub of greed. And that's what causes him to get angry. It was inhibition to experiencing the presence of God. So when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is oftentimes what happens. Well, actually all the time. What happens when Jesus cleanses a dirty heart. There's ruckus. There's chaos. There's a huge shift of power. And all things going on, particularly in the heart of man, is what I'm referring to. It hurts. It's, it's, there's a lot of mess, if you will. But you must purge the evil for the good to come in. You must purge all the sin so that holiness and righteousness and peace can dwell. And that is what Christ is doing here. Getting rid of all the greed, all of the pride, all of the arrogance, all of the even, to a degree, perhaps racism that's present there as the Jewish people were kind of ostracizing, taking advantage of the Gentiles. Getting rid of all of that so that his house, the temple, could once again be a house of prayer for all people. And it's all because of his love. So let's wrap all of this up. Two kind of big application points for you. Number one is the apologetic note. I hope that as we've walked through the text, as you've looked at it, as we've seen, I hope that you're encouraged by this. 
Right? Jesus loves us so much that he weeps when we reject him. Jesus loves us so much that he gets angry at anything that would cause us harm or that, what, that would prevent us from coming to him. It's all because of his love. And if somebody asks you about this text, asks you about this passage, or even if you, you're kind of pondering this and wondering, how does this fit in? Just remember, at his core, God is love. At his core, God is not wrath. At his core, God is not anger. Those are merely byproducts of his pure, perfect love that he has for us broken sinners. At the end of time, anger and wrath will be gone, but his love will remain. Jesus loves us immensely, so much so that he weeps and that he gets angry at what causes us harm or what prevents us from going to him. I hope you understand that and you see that. But also, the personal and devotional application here. I hope that you are further attracted to the beauty of Jesus here. That you're further, your heart is further compelled to love him more. Not out of self-will, Lord, I need to love you more. I know your command says, love God with all your heart, love people as yourself. No, it's not. You don't generate it. All you do is receive the love that he has first shown to you. Rejoice in it, meditate on it, think about it, ponder it, receive it, and then you can share that love back to God, and then you can share that love with others. That's the entire point of Scripture. Receiving his love, sharing it with others. And I hope that you do that here. And whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're just exploring Christianity or you've been in the church for a while, but if you're, if you're exploring Christianity, the way that you receive this love is through repentance and faith. You may have heard that thrown around a lot in church, but even if you're a Christian for a while, it's a good reminder. Repentance and faith, it simply means turning from self, turning to God. Because inherently, you and I are prideful, sinful, idolatrous people. But what we need to do is relinquish our control. Because currently, the, the mantra of Disney is the way that we live as society. Follow your heart. All of us follow our heart inherently. But repentance and faith, it's all about telling God, I'm not going to follow my heart anymore. I'm going to follow your heart. I'm not going to give the instructions for my life. I'm not going to do what I want to do. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to follow your will. I want to follow your word. That's what repentance and faith is, submitting ourselves to the kingship of Jesus. But today, also, if you're a Christian, how do I experience the love of God? How do I experience this peaceful fellowship that you say Jesus loves so much, that he wants us to have? How do I experience that? I alluded to it earlier, but I bring it up again. Where is the temple now? Where's the temple? Say it in us, yes, it is in us. First Corinthians three sixteen to seventeen. It's another good three sixteen verse for you to memorize or to just remember that reference in First Corinthians three sixteen to seventeen. Listen to the words. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. Did you hear that, especially that last phrase there? In modern America, 
individualistic society that we live in, we believe, we, we talk about how I can have access to God anywhere. I have a personal relationship with God. I can go to him at any time. I, it's all about you know, me, 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 I, I, I. But you see, and, and sometimes we also talk about our individual bodies are the temple of God. Is that true? Yeah. But do you see what the text said there? You together are the temple of God. You referring to the church, to all true Christians. Together, collectively, the church is the temple of God. So, of course, how do I have fellowship with God and and peaceful fellowship with him? Of course, you can do that in your prayer closet. Of course, you can do that at home. Uh, Reading the Bible one-on-one, Bible study, personal prayer, of course you can do that. The the simple thing I want to leave you with is this. For you to experience, to enjoy peaceful fellowship with God, you need the church. You need the church. You need to be in the church. You need to serve the church. You need to love the church. You need to pray for the church because Christ loves the church. If Christ's love is in you, you must, you will love the church as well. You cannot be an accurate, faithful, true Christian and say, I love Jesus, but the church, I'm not a big fan of it. You cannot do that. And what I simply leave you with is this. The church collectively is God's temple. Jesus cares passionately about us having fellowship with him. Where the temple of God is, is where the presence of God is. Where the presence of God is, there is fullness of joy. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to experience joy. We must be in his presence. Where is his presence today? It is in the church, in the temple of God, which is you and I collectively together if you're a Christian. So Christian, I remind you, don't forsake the assembling of gathering together. Do not forsake that, as Hebrews chapter 13 tells us. Rejoice and be thankful for what Christ has done for us. Rejoice in what his love, in his love that he has displayed for us. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll uh, close with the doxology. Holy Spirit, we simply ask you now that you will take these words that we have heard, that we have read. Please make it effectual in our hearts. Plant the seeds of your gospel, of your truth, deep into our hearts so that fruit might bear, so that righteous deeds might come forward in our lives, and that godly affections will be spurred in our hearts. Open our eyes to see that we truly need you personally. That we need to be reconciled to you personally. Open our eyes to see anything that we might be doing that's causing other people to stumble. Help us to be pure lights, pure vessels by which others see you through us. That as the world and as the lost and even as Christians, as, as people see our good deeds, which only comes about by your strength, but as people see good deeds through us, we know that in your word, they will have a curiosity, they will wonder, and they will even desire to taste 
and see that you are good. Thank you, Jesus, for the love that you've displayed to us. Thank you that your love is is passionate, it's real, it's active, it's alive. Please help us to rejoice in that love, to receive it, and then to share it as you've called us to. Holy Spirit, apart from you, we labor in vain. Apart from you, we are wasting time. Help us to be blessed by you and help us to bless others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand and sing the doxology?